Hello again, everybody. Welcome back. This is Julie Knutson with the podcast Training the Pointy Labrador, episode number 141. In today's episode, I'm not going to talk about G at all because there's nothing particularly new there. Uh, I'm going to pull together some threads from the past couple of podcasts that I've had that I think are important to pull together to really get the full, uh, you know, information out of all that. But in the last one on staunching up your pointing retriever, I talked about how training um, pointing retrievers, retrievers that point, uh, is, a, is a little bit different kettle of fish than it is uh, training the pointing breeds. And that's not a good guy, bad guy. This one's better, that one's not. That, I don't, that's silly. I, I don't do that at all. But it's important to understand that when the pointing breeds, for the most part, were developed and have been enhanced and worked on to have uh, these dogs who specialize in the search and find, the search and find of an upland bird, a live bird. That's their primary thing. Some of them, you know, they teach them, they get them, some of them do retrieve naturally. Uh, some of them with a little help, they, you can get them to go get the bird and come back. I know in the pointer, AKC pointer field trials, at least the ones I saw, the horseback thing, there's no retrieving at all. <laughs> For all of us retriever people standing there watching that, we're going, wow, how does that work? Probably like they would do at our field trials where they have 500 yard long retrieves. Um, you know, it was just very different, but those dogs are bred more for that. And then you can get some of that other stuff in. Um, our dogs were started out as basically waterfowl dogs. And also, you know, in, in, uh, in Europe, they would be used on gentleman hunts where the, you, a bunch of people go across a field and the dogs are with them. And when, if a bird flies up, if they flush one up out front, they shoot it, then the retriever goes and gets it and brings it back. So they're not out there doing the thing, you know, covering 70 miles an hour out there in front of you, a gentleman's hut. That's sort of how our guys started. Most of the retriever breeds. Shoot, the tollers, they, they toll. They go and run around on a bank and lure in. They're like a decoy, and they lure in waterfowl, and then they shoot. So that's even, a, you know, that's super cool. Um, but anyway, th that's what all the retriever breeds were, were primarily bred for that. So in our dogs, in our retrievers that we have, the desire to retrieve, one, is probably the main reason you got them. And two, it's really wonderful if they also point upland game. But they can do, you got them for all the retriever stuff. It's similar with the uh, the pointing breeds. And I know the short hairs and stuff, they can do all kinds of stuff. right? But you generally get the pointing breeds because upland hunting is your thing. And you'd also like to be able to get all the birds retrieved and maybe run blind retrieves. And maybe even have them go get ducks and stuff in the water. Or the pheasant if it goes in the river. But there are two different kinds of things here. And so when I talk about training the pointing retriever and I talk about balance and I talk about how two different kinds of things kind of need to dovetail, I have found over a long period of time that, that it's most easily accomplished getting to the finished part of that. If you train what you've got, if you train to what's inside that dog's head versus some kind of recipe that somebody gave you or train one part of the dog and then train another part of the dog. 
it, it's just easier on the dog is as they grow and develop from the little puppies like G, as they come up, they begin to understand not the end use that they're going to get. You know, I fully disagree with that, but they begin to understand the world around them and what their role in it is and in, in not the finished thing. Then I see a lot of people, we're all in a hurry, in a hurry to get to the finished thing. Everybody wants to staunch up their dog. Everybody wants to start running blind retrieves. Everybody wants to start doing multiple marks. And when you get there to the right point, it is fantastic. But if you hurry or get things a little bit out of balance, then it makes it that much more difficult for the dog to understand uh, their role in the world and in your life and what they do when they're working for you and if you compete then what they do over there so it's important to this is like a we're we're kind of our own anomaly we're our own little niche these pointing retrievers and i know they've always they've been subject to tons of ridicules i used to before that'd be over 30 years ago but we thought it was a joke obviously i don't think it's a joke anymore there's some dogs out there that would make people think that but when you get the good ones, there's just no denying it. So approaching this, at least understanding that, again, my opinion, when we're training these guys, instead of training to some kind of, of guideline that we've been given that we've got tacked to the wall, is to train these guys by what is in their head. And frankly, that's the same way that we all do better in what we do if we somebody has kids and they just stamp it out and maybe a lot of us were raised this way all right you do this you do this you do this you never get a grade at below a b you do that and you know you're just kind of just manufactured then you don't that's very problematic and with human beings it can cause a lot of problems versus if you sit there and go look at this kid you know they learn slowly they learn super fast they get bored easily they can't pay attention this one loves music this one loves sports and you deal with your kid the way they are then you can make this turn out as as you know as successful as possible from your input same with the dogs if we understand what's going on in the head of that dog and understand you know what are they all about and then tailor our training program for that i've just said it over and over again and i'll never stop saying it because it's really important and when you get this uh, this uh, pointing and retriever thing going at the same time with the variety that we have in dogs it isn't the simplest thing to do uh, for in terms of a lifetime's worth of training that lasts forever and it's all for real it's not just sort of a stamped out i can make the dog do this kind of training that's what i'm talking about so when i give my opinion on this and i talk about experiences and things that i do it's based on that because i don't know any other way ultimately that works seen many dogs in events many dogs i have seen many that were trained to go out find the bird and stand there dutifully go retrieve it give you know and um i guess i'm too much of a purist but that's that's just somebody making money that is, and then they breed those dogs by the way so it's a you really want to kind of know what kind of dog you're getting puppies out of but that i digress on that so my whole thing was on that and i said in the last in the last podcast 
that balance is really important. And I'll just try to make this point one more time again. Balance is really important. So you have the dependent work of obedience, of marked retrieves, of beginning to teach the handling stuff, you know, the go and stop and take cast. All takes time for all that. It's not something you get quick. But that is all look at me or listen to me and do what I've shown you that I want. That's what that is. So I have always called that dependent work. When you're hunting upland birds and not not fakey stuff, I mean teaching a dog to really go locate a real bird that can get away out in the field without you directing them and telling them where to go and how to do it and how far out and then come back and then go to the right and go to the left. You let them take over all the responsibility for finding birds. That is very independent work. So they are doing their own thinking. Now, done right, they are still connected to you. They are still aware of you and they're still staying in the range with you and they are still moving in the direction that you are showing them you want to go. But they are taking the full responsibility for bird location. And if, you, if they're getting, you know, in a place they shouldn't be, really easy to move them out, move them another direction. That's it. Other than that, it's very dependent work. That's two different parts of the brain. Two different parts of the head are being activated. And if one is activated a bunch and the other one is not activated at all, then one grows and one shrinks. So if you just really like, and there's a lot of trainers that just really like, you know, putting the dog on birds. And they believe that's how you train a dog. And you can get them real good on birds and finding and all that stuff. Just try to call them off a chase sometime. Unless you have a tool of inflicting pain on them to make them come back. So it's a balance between the very independent and the very dependent. And it's not exactly the same with all dogs. Just like that kind of thing isn't with people. That's the part where you've got to look at your dog and go, Man, this dog's getting crazy. I'm going to kind of back off or not do some upland stuff for a little while. I'm going to try and get where the two sides of this dog, the go get it and the don't go get it part, are balancing each other out. So that's, that is, that's most of my job. And when I do other people's dogs, I can't send home a, a maniac and I can't send home a robot or a dog that's just been mushed down by being told everything to do. So we have to keep this in balance so the dog is really good at what it does, really loves what it does, and thinks it's doing it with you. So that's what I'm talking about with all of this. So in light of that, I got some, uh, some questions. And I, I'm going to do, I, I got three of them out of here that I, I'm going to do, so just so I don't keep you listening too, too long. First one, and this is really common, particularly with people that are fairly new to this, Sometimes my dog will sit down out in the field if I say, whoa. So how can I prevent that from happening or how I can stop that? That's not at all uncommon. I've had a few like that where from, because of some things I did, I had that problem. I, you know, I, I would, if when they, I was out there trying to make sure that certain things happened, they would just sit down. In the retriever world, now this does not mean don't teach a dog sit. I know I've heard that so many times. A lot of pointer-based kind of people say never teach a pointing dog to sit because of this question right here. And I'll have to say, I think I got 79 Grandmaster Pointing Retrievers. Every one of those Hummers sits, sits at 300 yards on a dime, sits right next to me. And they are do not sit in the upland field. 
what happens is in our regular retriever training, when you're bringing these dogs through the retriever stuff, which of course is you have to sit at my side when we're running marks and you can't move. So we are really emphasizing sit. And then when we start the handling stuff, so it's go on back or whatever you say, and I blow that sit whistle and you turn around and sit and not slow and kind of whenever you get around to it, but kind of on a dime, you sit. So we have a lot of sit. And if you think about it, in the training of our dog, starting from basic obedience, even like where little G, four month old G is, sit is usually the way that you relieve pressure. And I, it could be mechanical pressure. It could be you raising your voice. It could be you, you know, with the leash with you with a little plastic stick, hopping or whatever. We teach them early on. One of the best ways to relieve pressure is to sit down. That's what makes everything okay to sit and sit rapidly. And then, so we start basic obedience and sits a really big deal. And in enforcing sit is such a problem solver. It's how we get dogs to load into crates and vehicles that they don't want to. It's how we get them to not jump on us. It's how we get them to keep off the counter. It's how we get them to do lots of stuff. If they're out doing obedience and not giving you full attention, you enforce sit a few times, you draw them right back into you. So sit is a power deal and it's how they make everything be okay by responding to that. So if you're mad at them jumping and you enforce sit, they quit jumping. Sit solved that problem. So when we go out in the upland, oh, well, let me just go on to the handling stuff, right? So on the handling stuff, go and boy, when I say sit, you're on a dead run, a dead run. And I blow that sit whistle, you sit right there, right where you are. So sit is very much in their heads and psyches. Sit is the thing you do that's usually a really good thing to do if there's any pressure at all. And then we put stick pressure on it, leash pressure on it, electric collar pressure on it, all to get that bottom to drop in our very dependent thinking activities. Now you go out in the upland field and your dog is doing its thing and it goes on point and you've been, you know, let's say it's, you've done all the wool breaking with it. And it's real good. You can do all kinds of stuff with it, but you go out there and you see that bird walking around. So you give them a good wool or something and they sit down and people are all upset. Oh no, what am I going to do? Probably that happened because in the tone of your voice or, or the intent when you said that, there's pressure coming from you. The past year, year and a half, however many years of this dog's work has been, man, when he says, or she says, you know, says something, I oh, sit down is always a thing to do. That's natural. That's a, a burned out synapse path they have in their brain. So when they feel pressure from you, even it could be verbal, it could be seeing you, it could be hearing you walk up to them. If they feel some pressure in that, that can make some dogs sit down because that's always been the safe thing. So that's why it happens. That doesn't mean you go back and don't put in require the sit stuff, but it does tell you, and again, it depends on the dog, several things. Maybe you're putting pressure on this dog when they're on a bird. And so that kind of first thing that comes to mind is the sit thing. Enforcement pressure, at least as I've described it and as, as I learned it from the pointing guys, is that's a low, very low level pressure of, of enforcement on woe. It's not the high hard one like we do on the sit on a dead run. So 
so they we you know when they hear, that's why they don't always remain standing when they hear you say something because they feel the pressure and it, we always sit down and they don't associate or shouldn't pressure with standing up significant pressure they shouldn't you know but some pointing guys do they have that but anyway they don't have the same sit that we've got so your dog that's what's going on in your dog's head right there so there's depending on the dog there's a number of things you can do one is let's quit talking out in the field let's quit yelling whoa let's quit walking up stomping behind them or let's not be coming at them all upset let's not put pressure on them for sitting down because that's just man they can't win they get pressure to sit then they get pressure when they sat but they don't won't know what to do so understand where the dog's head is on this thing possibly and understand that that's how they relieve pressure from you and so when you even think about it and they know that a lot of times you'll get that sit down deal the best thing to do is um uh, well in my opinion the best thing to do is do your woe training elsewhere not in the field don't put pressure on the field i said last week in this podcast i i, I don't say stuff when they go out on a bird and if they screw up i go ha i got more work to do i don't put pressure on them out there because our pointing retrievers have dual pressure Pressure to stand and pressure not to stand. And we've got to be very uh, judicious about how we use pressure in the field. So I don't like, I won't do the electricity thing, except for if they're chasing. And I will go back and adjust my yard training on that. So, but that's why they do it a lot of the time. A lot of, a matter of fact, every time I've ever seen it, that's what it's been. So that one takes a little work, but you have to be aware of what's, in the dog's head so many times dogs get in trouble for sitting down when they you say whoa and then they sit down they get in a lot of trouble there is no way for there to win now because they've already had a lot of pressure to sit so you can run good blinds and do all this stuff and then they come over here and there's pressure and they sit and then they get more pressure what are they supposed to do with that you put them in a bad way so you can create resentment you can dishearten the heck out of them or just teach them, heck with you, I'm just going to blast you. You don't make any sense to me at all. So I'd be very cautious about that thing. Okay, next question. Basically, comes down to how do you stop these guys from pointing birds close? Okay, that's a... Let me see if I can just summarize this and not talk too much on this. Usually, we teach them to point close. <laughs> So when you go take a bird, like I could, let's take little G right now. She's four months old. As soon as I get my checker in, I'll almost have ground out there now. When I go to, if I go stick that little sucker somewhere where there he is, he's going to be, I dizzy him, you know, I put him somewhere where he's not going to move. And <clears throat> she goes in there, kind of an aggressive little girl. And she goes in there and, and, um, finds that bird and when she first smells it because you plant it so they can smell it from some distance you don't plant it where they cannot smell it from they have to be a foot away from it before they do then we teach them to be a foot away but so you plant it where she can smell it far away and if she starts moving forward it's gone if you have it stuck there and she can smell it she can get right in on it and then just a few times of that, and they learn, oh, you can get right and look at them. And you can, even if they point sometimes, they learn to get real close. So a lot of the things we do on young dogs, or when we first put them on birds, literally teaches them. You know, you when you smell that, 
get up close and make sure it is what you think and just get up close. Another way we teach birds, uh, dogs, dogs to point birds closely is we have no gloves or we have stinky gloves or our gloves smell like the dead ducks that we did earlier or yesterday. And we go out and we walk out to where we're going to put the bird. And then we put it down in there and the bird smells like us. And then you can just track right out to it. You don't think these guys can't smell where you are? I mean, I they can do it about third or fourth time you do that. They go, just drop your nose and, and follow. Just like they'll learn if you use four-wheelers. Follow the four-wheeler and just check over to the side. So many times we teach dogs to get real close to birds because we just hand it to them. We got little blinking signs going right over here. So yeah, they can get up just as satisfyingly close as they want. And again, by putting birds down a little bit too heavy. Um, Generally, those are the places where we wind up teaching them that stuff. Not intentionally at all. Plant birds. Where people plant birds... um, needs to be given a lot a lot of thought what's the wind direction obviously what kind of cover do we have okay if you put it in the cover is the wind even going to get out there at all so are they going to have to get real close before they can get the convincing scent all these kind of aspects when we do that with dogs um helps them you know learn that they need to get closer and closer to really discern this thing the best pointing labs I ever got in to train were ones that were raised on wild quail in West Texas. And those hummers at point uh, 30 feet back or farther. That was great because if you got any closer, everything was gone. Now, that's a luxury to have that, but that's why they tended to be a lot further back. So a lot of what we do in training and the way we plant the birds and the way we deal with the dogs winds up teaching them to get real close. So well, one, of this, one of the things people do is they put the launchers out there. So as soon as the dog gets very close, they pop that thing and the bird is shot out of there. And with some dogs uh, with a more simple mentality, that can work. With other dogs, as soon as they smell a launcher, that, that backs them off and they stop. So, mm, you know, I'm not sure that I don't do that just because they can smell launchers. And that you had, they can smell where you walked and planted it out there. So most of the time... Um, we wind up inadvertently teaching that to dogs because I've not really given a lot of thought to what we're doing. So in terms of the planning thing, you know, if you just walk from your vehicle out, put one over here, one over here, one over here and walk back, then they will just, they will learn the second or third time you do that. I went this way and come out. So if you need to avoid that, and I'm in that situation a lot, Come in, have the birds in another location, not downwind or upwind of you guys or whatever it is. So know where they can't smell it when they're out there. Come in from another angle and put the birds in and then come around and go ahead. They'll figure out stuff. Even when you do it really well, they'll figure out stuff. But you don't want to just, out through repetition, make it super easy for them. But that's pretty important. Then some dogs, um, some dogs are point real far back pointers. We had a, a group of dogs here out of one litter. Mom was out of Texas. Dad was out of uh, Colorado. And <laughs> those dogs, I had one. They all became four time. And I remember another good friend, pro of mine, he had one. <laughs> and I was laughing because I got to judge him running his litter mate to that. Because those dogs that go on point and literally the bird would be at least 25 yards, sometimes more. 
Oh, wait. So when you're in an APLA test, you know, you're going, no, don't look 10 feet in front of them. You need to, and it would be down there and it would be, it was hard to do. It'd be great if you were hunting wild birds. It really would. And those guys just did it. It was some kind of genetic thing. Then some dogs, um, I don't know whether they just don't think real well or they don't catch scent really well or put two and two together. But some dogs like to get satisfyingly close. Some dogs, if they can, they love that eyeball to eyeball thing. It just give you a heart attack. But you can at least prevent that by all your early work, making sure that the dog is not rewarded. You don't set it up so they can just get closer and closer. So I hope that helps. It's that's there's probably some more considerations, but most of that stuff is stuff that that we do, and then we do it consistently. All right, my third question is going to be, let's see, here we are. All right, in my last podcast, I alluded to how doing the handling work had been for, fairly helpful. So the question was, how can handling make a dog point better? I do not get that. Yeah, I, I can understand why. Um, like I said earlier, there is independent work, independent thinking, and then there is dependent thinking. And so... When dogs are running blind retrieves, doing the handling stuff, that's where they're at our side, faced a certain direction. You put your hand down and you say back, whatever you say, back, and they know they have to go. They don't have a choice. If you're training a dog to handle and just hoping that their love of going is going, you're not going to get the whole job done. There's a conditioning process you go take them through where they, when you say back, they know I need to go. They don't have to go perfect. They just need to go. And then a lot of practice, we get them to be really, really good at that. And then when I blow that whist, sit whistle, you stop, turn around, look at, face me and wait for a cast. And if you have to wait 20 seconds, you wait 20 seconds and then go again. So there's a lot of very dependent thinking. They, they know exactly, and it's kind of unnatural stuff. You know, to go when you haven't seen anything and to stop just because I said that's that's not a just a natural thing for these guys. They're real easy to get to do that it, done correctly. But it's very dependent. So they turn around and they look at you and go, okay, tell me what then. And they're doing everything the way that we want them to. And they get the retrieve out of it and they love it. Right? They do love it. Um, but it takes a while when they get the confidence and really understand what they're doing. But they're doing what we say. They go in the direction we point them. They run until we stop them or they find what they're looking for. And they stop no matter what and wait however long. And then they take the cast. So that's a big part of their brain. They get real good at that stuff. And they come to love that work. And if you do like the double T and all that, right? They like that stuff too. It's just like a game. And we just condition them to go and stop. When you think about, now let's go to the upland field. When you think about that dog over in the upland field. Now, we're not going to tell them how to hunt, I hope. They figure that out over the puppy walks and then the walks and then the time in the field teaching them gun range. And then all the stuff they know, right, to, how to use the wind. They learn to use the wind. They learn where they're supposed to stay with regard to you. And so they know that. And now they're out there on their own looking for this bird within your, you know, within the lines you've drawn in the sand there. They're out looking for that. And when they find it and they go on point, because that's what they do naturally, when they go on point, all right, 
there they are in that sort of trance-like state. Now, you get every kind of behavior in the world, but sometimes very aggressive dogs, dogs that are just nutso about retrieving, which is good. Not, nothing wrong with that. They're just, re and they're, you know, they really like it, and they really like that bird in their mouth and all that stuff. Okay, we want them not to move again. This is not a puppy now, right? This is after they have all this other stuff. We want them to do something that's very unnatural. And that is, if they're out hunting for birds, they're not going to sit there and point it for a half hour until it flies away. They go out there and they point that stuff. They're predators. And then they're going to want to get it and eat it, ultimately. That's what's on their DNA. So when they go out and they point that bird, you have some... Uh, conflicting thoughts in their head unless they're one of those guys that just points and never moves and then you're lucky you don't even have to be listening to this but the you got this unnatural thing now with these guys that that you're pointing that bird but you can't move obviously if the bird re relocates then you can but if we're just saying that bird is over there 20 feet away and you're not moving and you'd love to get up closer, right? It would be real nice to get that eyeball-to-eyeball -eyeball thing. They do like that if they can get away with it. Or they just want to go up and get it and maybe just grab it. But we want them to do completely unnatural thing and stop and stay there where they are until we flush it and shoot it and drop it and all that stuff. For those of you that want the dog to point and flush, let them be real good at pointing before you start the anti-pointing stuff. That's just strongly my suggestion. But anyhow, we're inside that part of their head where it's like, okay, now I know what you want to do, but this is what you need to do here. If they, you haven't been in that part of their head very much, and you haven't really worked that and worked that and worked that like you do on all that handling stuff, like you do on the basic obedience and the go and the stop and take a straight line and cast 20 degrees to the right or cast 20 degrees to the left. When you've done a lot of that, that part of their brain, if it was a muscle, it'd be real big. It'd be real big because it's used and it, the dog is so comfortable with that and so understands the concept of doing something that it would rather not do but that's the deal between you, so it does it anyway, and it doesn't question and challenge. It just does what you want. That part of their head is all exercised and big. So now out there, once they're on point, if you've been doing that exercise on the head thing a little bit, the, the, the thinking and the doing what they're supposed to, even if it's not what they feel like doing, then when you come over here, it is much much easier for that dog to use that part of their head and go, move, can't move. And they're not going, what am I stepping here? I need to get this. I want this. I want to do this or that. We've kind of taken the I want stuff. We haven't really, we've displaced it with all the other stuff that we've got. So they tend to go out there now more in a mindset of cooperating and doing what they know is expected and not doing just whatever the heck they want. So I have resoundingly found that the one, just having that other kind of thinking well-developed by doing the more advanced stuff is very helpful. And then making sure on that more advanced handling stuff when I'm over there working on that, that I really ask a lot out of them. I really challenge them when they're tempted to do something else, to do something, when they're tempted to, they want to take a left cast over there because they just... And I'm going to make them take a right cast just because I asked them to. When I really challenge 
whether they do what they want or whether they do what I ask on places where it's clearly understood and there's no downside, no squishing of the, the love of what they're doing, but it's more like an intellectual thing. When I can really, the more demanding I get over there, the much, 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 much easier time than I have saying, when you're on point, you're done. Um, I'm not going to yell at you so you sit down or anything else, but you're going to stay there and they're going to be more comfortable honoring what they know they're supposed to do than doing what would be really fun to do. So that's why I have always said that and I continue to find it more and more that way. If you're not going to, if you don't know how to teach a dog to handle or you don't want to do that, there are still many ways you can get in your dog's head, having them do things that are not entirely natural obviously fair and reasonable things that the dog will wind up enjoying especially related to retrieving have them do that stuff but having to honor your desires over their own and that can translate in the upland field very favorably for you so that's a that's a real powerful thing that i've used for a long time to get these guys to do this stuff so that's going to wrap up today um a little less finally half hour trying to kind of sew these things together. As G goes through all this, maybe, you know, we can harken back on some of these things that I've said and see how, how that works with her. But working with these dogs, it's working with, they're not a widget. It's not like Samsung sent you a dog widget. And these are the, how we program it and this is what we do and then this is what it does. This is just not that way. And the more that you can get in the head of that dog and pay attention to that, if you have to, put yourself in their shoes. They don't think like we do. They don't do that. But at least put yourself in there going, you know, is do I do I really understand why this dog seems so stubborn about this? Am I misreading this? Is it something I've done? Because it's always something we've done. Um, and what might that be? And then when their dog does fantastic, take credit for that too, because it meant you probably read stuff pretty well and you did a good job. So that's the offering for this week. The deep freeze, at least for right now, is over, I think, almost everywhere. we got a new one coming in, but I hope it goes somewhere else where they're used to it. And uh, wish everybody well. Stay healthy and happy. The season's coming. And go out there and do some good dog work.